This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal papa shot abilities, and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Homa, PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grinding and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Soma and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And for our last episode of the year here, we're going to be talking about some historical discoveries that came out of 2010, just things that were weird or fun or made a lot of news, things that we thought were worth talking about. Yeah, in our recent podcast, we've mentioned several discoveries of 2010. So these are just some different ones that we didn't get to focus on in those. Um, The Graveyard of Ships was one. Um, The Gladiator Graveyard was another find from this year that was really interesting. Yeah, and one of my favorites from earlier this year was the Medici cold case uh, with the dueling medical journals about how a couple of Medicis died. So, you know, we've covered a lot of interesting historical finds this year, but these five really stood out at us or just seemed like so much fun. And some of them were actually listener suggestions. So I hope you enjoy. You can always submit your own suggestions if you um, if you feel like we overlooked truly the most exciting or weird historical discovery of 2010. Yeah, tell us. But this is our list of five. And we're going to start with one of the most recent. It just came out around Thanksgiving this year. And that was the Picasso trove of paintings and drawings and sketchbooks tons of stuff. Yeah, Sarah, you did a blog post on this, didn't you? I did, and um, it was something that as soon as I saw the story, I was like, okay, I need to talk about this. Yeah, it was very interesting. So, I mean, Picasso was a prolific artist, obviously. He left a lot of art behind, but it's not every day that a huge trove of art like this that's uncatalogued pops up out of nowhere. And the way it came about, it's kind of a shady story behind it. So what we know is earlier this fall, the retired electrician Pierre Leguinec contacted Claude Picasso, the artist's son, seeking to have a stash of works authenticated. 
Yeah, and the younger Picasso said, well, I really need to take a look at them in person to rule, to decide if they're authentic or not. And he encouraged Le Guinec to come to Paris and show the works in person. And Claude later told the French newspaper Liberation, um, I found this quote through the New York Times, quote, I felt a great surprise, naturally, lots of emotion at the discovery of pieces with which we were not familiar, but also a deep disturbance. Many of these pieces were not dated, which means they never should have left the studio. Shady. Yeah, so that's kind of a bad sign there. And the thing is, even though Picasso was quite generous with his art, he'd give it out to family and friends, and he would even um, use it like at the cafe or something in exchange for (laughs) his coffee and I don't know, his meal. I love that. Dash off a little picture and sign it and date it, and that would replace the bill. Um, but he was really worried about imposters, and so he didn't give too much away. He always did sign and date it, and sometimes he was even quite reluctant to part with his art. He's known to have bought back pieces that he missed too much. Right. So the knowing that, the idea that this former electrician of Picasso's was given 271 sketches, lithographs, paintings, and notebooks seemed a little bit off to Claude. Yeah. And so... To say the least. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> the police were brought in and Le Guinec was separated from this $80 million stash of art, estimated $80 million. And the Picasso Foundation followed the whole thing up with a lawsuit. So this electrician thought he was going to be getting the seal of approval from Claude, ends up being sued for a legal receipt. And Le Guinec still maintains that the art was a gift from uh, either Picasso or Picasso's wife. Um, It's going to take a while to sort out, it seems. Weirdly, though, Le Guinec and his wife are now saying they're actually heirs to even more Picassos, since they're distant cousins of a chauffeur of the artist who was also given some works. Yeah, this is something that came out after the first major news cycle of this Picasso story. But Was it before or after the lawsuit? <laughs> I think it was after <laughs> the lawsuit, but it's so weird. Um, like double the Picasso stash, this was perhaps. a very important electrician, it he, seems. He was, with an important connection to an important chauffeur. Um, so despite the legal trouble, though, the stash itself is pretty cool, and it's worth a mention. Um, in our list of important historical finds. It dates from 1900 to 1932 when Picasso was a young and struggling artist. And it includes portraits of his first wife, the ballerina Olga Koklova, in a blue period watercolor. Yep, there are also nine cubist collages, 30 lithographs, and more than 200 drawings. So overall... Uh, Sounds like a boon to the art world, at least, if not to Pierre Le Guinac. We'll see. Um, so the next item on our list is kind of a different <laughs> a different bird. Fashion-related, you could say. You could say that. And uh, it involves shoes. So I'll give you a little background on it. Up until this year, the oldest known leather shoe belonged to a guy named Utsi the Iceman, a mummy found 19 years ago in the Alps near the Italian-Austrian border. His shoe had bearskin soles, deerskin panels, tree bark netting, and it was kind of filled with like soft grass that went around the foot and functioned as a kind of primitive sock. (laughs) And 
the shoes were waterproof and kind of wide looking. I mean, to me, they almost look like something that would be set in a ski or like a snowshoe or something. Uh, but they look, I mean, pretty advanced for something that was made probably about 5,200 years ago. Um, I think that was a pretty big find at the time. But this year, scientists funded in part by the National Geographic Foundation published a new finding in the shoe arena. And that was a 5,500-year-old leather lace-up moccasin, which they found in, in an Armenian cave on the Iranian and Turkish borders. This discovery has cleverly been referred to by some news outlets. I love these descriptions as the ultimate vintage shoe or prehistoric Prada. Yeah, don't you want to get your hands on some? I definitely do. Well, no, not exactly, because when you hear a little You'll, bit more about this, you're going to be a little bit grossed out by how it was so well preserved. You'll want it safely behind glass. Um, just to put that date in perspective, the shoe is older than Stonehenge. It's even about a thousand years older than the Great Pyramids of Giza. And it's from the Calolithic period, or Copper Age, which researchers still don't really know a whole lot about. So it's old. It's an old, old shoe. Yeah, it's old as dirt and was so well preserved <laughs> because of the cool, dry environment in the cave and also because it was covered in layers of sheep dung which yeah. provided kind of a seal around it. And if you look at pictures of it online, and I'm sure just by Googling oldest leather shoe, <laughs> you can find some photos of it around. It looks like something that was covered in cow dung. It doesn't look too hot, but what is so remarkable about it is that the level of detail that was preserved, basically. I mean, laces, eyelets, and even the straw that was inside it was still there. That's the one case of when stepping in poop is a good thing. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. Um, and as far as its style goes, it's said to be similar to the Pampudis worn on the Aran Islands in the west of Ireland up until the 1950s. It's basically like a rawhide slipper. Um, and in size, it's comparable to a woman's size seven, uh, but they're not positive yet whether it was worn by a woman or worn by a man. Yeah, I think it's a right-footed shoe, but they say that even though it's sort of comparable to what a woman's foot would be now, it could have been a man's foot back in that time. Well, that was notable too, wasn't it? That it was made, each shoe was made for a specific foot. They weren't interchangeable yes. as many old shoes are. Absolutely. And the actual discovery, and this is a really interesting story, was made beneath one of several cave chambers by Armenian doctoral student Diana Zardarian. She noticed a small pit of weeds as she was exploring. And so she reached down and touched in that area, and she found two sheep horns and an upside-down broken bowl. And under that, she said she felt what she thought was an ear of a cow, which to me would be alarming, but apparently she <laughs> thought that was pretty cool. And, but when she took it out, she looked at it and she thought, oh, my... And this is a quote that for, she gave to the New York Times. Best and quote ever. Best quote ever. Best quote of 2010. Oh, my God, it's a shoe. To find a shoe has always been my dream. So there you go. I mean, and not just any shoe, the oldest shoe. The oldest shoe. The dreams of archaeologists coming coming true in 2010. Another interesting thing about this find, though, it seemed to scientists that the shoe was put in the pit on purpose, and they can't really figure out why you would put a shoe in a pit, but they're working on it. So it's just kind of a, a quirky, interesting discovery, and it might have some really important implications, because learning where 
the skin processing techniques came from might give us an idea of the complexity of this society. So, I mean, you learn a lot about a man by his shoes. Definitely. Today and back in the day. (laughs) So our next find is also of the ancient variety, although it has to do more with uh, religion and construction projects than fashion. So archaeologists for a long time have assumed that the area around Stonehenge was empty. And Professor Vince Gaffney of Birmingham University, who studies the whole area, said, quote, people have tended to think that as Stonehenge reached its peak, it was the paramount monument existing in splendid isolation. And that's sort of how you look at it today. You know, that screensaver, yep. <laughs> like blue sky behind it and green fields. And nothing else. Yeah, you don't think of a bunch of other stuff being around Stonehenge. But that's not how it was, apparently. Not at all. So we know that Woodhenge was discovered in 1925, about two miles away from the Stonehenge site. And there have been multiple discoveries just in the past few years. Ditches, roads, burial grounds. There was a stash of Bronze Age monuments only a few miles off. Even another wooden hinge found in 2009, though the details of that one really haven't come out yet. Yeah, but the wooden hinge that was discovered this July in 2010, as it has to have been for our list, tops all of these other discoveries. A lot of archaeologists are saying that it's the most impressive find on the site in the past 50 years. So how did they find this? Well, using geophysical imaging technology, which is A machine that looks a little bit like a riding lawnmower, but it's really a radar scanning system, which lets them scan three yards deep at 12 miles per hour. And Gaffney's team, they use this technology to find something interesting, and it was almost 3,000 feet, 2,950 feet from Stonehenge. Yeah, what they found was an 80-foot-wide bank and ditch with entrances aligned with those at Stonehenge. Uh, They're... Of course, if you are familiar with Stonehenge, that means those entrances are also aligned with the solstice. So on the solstice, the sun enters into the circle. Inside of this bank and ditch combo were 24 holes, each three feet across, which they reckon uh, a hole of that size could have supported a pole up to 19 feet high. And they assume that it was a wooden hinge because... If there had been stones there, the holes might have been a little more beaten up if the stones had been excavated since then. Um, The archaeologists assume that the wood just rotted in place. And in the center of this whole thing is a burial mound about 40 feet wide. So there you go, a henge. In the middle of uh, in the middle of the field. Yep, Gaffney calls it a timber equivalent to Stonehenge, and guesses that it's about forty five hundred years old, and is near that was near when Stonehenge was at its peak. Yeah, since Stonehenge was built in phases, and we of course don't know what this new henge find was used for, but theories range from everything from being a cemetery to being a hospital to being a site for funerals, and since the find came at the beginning of this three-year-long surveying project with this uh, riding lawnmower-type machine, we can expect probably some more finds out here around Stonehenge in the next few years. And this kind of site is pretty easy to miss after thousands of years of plowing. You know? So there's a good chance there might be something else. Yeah, it's almost like you need this technology to be able to detect the minute traces of whatever's left. Yeah, and this I thought was interesting. Stonehenge itself might have likely started out as a ring of wooden posts like this one found in 2010 before farmers brought in the blue stones, followed by the large, giant 
sarsen stones. Yeah, and the legends around where the stones came from in Stonehenge, I've always thought are really cool. Uh, There's like a legend that the stones were brought to England from Ireland by the wizard Merlin, and that those stones had originally been brought to Ireland from Africa by giants (laughs) who thought they had um, mystical healing properties. So anything having to do with Stonehenge probably going to make our list, I'd Definitely. say. Um, but this is just too weird not to mention, and it honestly kind of confused me when I was researching this wooden hinge. At almost the exact same time as this news came out, really within days, another study came out on a similar ancient wooden hinge in Ohio. And the site itself isn't a new discovery. They've known about this Ohio hinge for a while. But the revelation was that it was also aligned to match up with the solstice. So pretty cool double hinge find and sort of a bonus addition for our list. Yeah, cool and freaky. Next, we have kind of a sweet find, I think, Sarah. Um, Archaeologists began uncovering this footprint of a building in Jamestown, Virginia, which was, of course, the first English settlement in the New World earlier this year. And by August, they'd realized that it was actually the remains of the church in which Pocahontas married English tobacco farmer John Rolfe. Yeah, and Pocahontas... um Katie and I did an episode on her more than a year ago, but she was, of course, a Powhatan Indian woman and daughter of the chief. And she apparently befriended the settlers of the Jamestown colony as a young girl and was a frequent visitor, really helped them stay alive and survive. And in 1614, she married John Rolfe, uh, also the subject of an earlier <laughs> podcast. Um, and that start, their marriage was essentially an alliance between the Native Americans and the English. And it started this period of peace between the Powhatan Indians. In 1614, Pocahontas married John Rolfe, who was also the subject of an earlier podcast. And their marriage was essentially an alliance that started a period of peace between the Powhatan Indians and the colonists that lasted for about eight years. Yeah, and just an interesting side fact to that marriage is that according to one colonist, she'd actually been married before to an Indian named Kokum. So just a fun fact thrown in there. But back to the chapel, how did they know that they had actually found it? I mean, what gave them the evidence? Well, they weren't really sure at first, but they figured out the building's dimensions, and then they realized that there were four graves neatly aligned in the center of the east end of the building. And it's the spot that would have coincided with where the altar would have been and also where elite members of the church would have been buried. Also, the second thing was that there were eight post holes large enough and deep enough to have held timbers capable of supporting a large cathedral-type ceiling. And then there was also a footprint of a pretty chapel and that was in line with the holes. And this, they figured that that would be there because it was documented by Jamestown colonist William Strachey in 1610 in his account of the chapel. The fourth thing that kind of clued them into the fact that this was Pocahontas's wedding chapel is that the structure was located near where an X or perhaps a cross, which is thought to represent a church site on maps of that era. It's marked on a 1608 Zuniga map which is a rare first-hand sketch of James Fort and surroundings. Yeah, so, so far, archaeologists have only excavated about half of the church, so there's definitely going to be a lot to come in 2011. Um, and they're hoping to find a 
few different things, namely the identities of the four people buried near the altar area. They have some guesses, though, based on date recorded dates of deaths and the status within the community. And some of their guesses are the Reverend Robert Hunt, who is Jamestown's first chaplain, Sir Fernando Wenman, who is the master of ordinance for Fort James, Captain Peter Wynne, a sergeant major of the fort, and Captain Gabriel Archer, who is a member of the colony's first governing council. So those are the number four um, names thrown out for who's buried in Pocahontas' chapel. Yeah, it'll be interesting to find out who it really is. And it looks like maybe we can look forward to learning more about that maybe as soon as next summer. So our final entry for this list of 2010 historical discoveries is on the light side. It's kind of fun, and hopefully it'll get you in the spirit for ringing in the new year. You said spirit. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, that's a clue to to what this item has to do with. Um, there's long been an argument that Stone Age farmers grew cereals not just for food, but to make beer. And, I mean, that argument has been around for a while. But just this year, the archaeologist Brian Hayden from the Simon Fraser University in Canada has started studying it more carefully and released a report on it, um, just trying to figure out what the importance of the brew had been for the development of a lot of world cultures. So here's a little background on that. The Neolithic era people in Southwest Asia pioneered the use of wild cereals. You would think that they did this to have something to eat, right? But actually, that wasn't so much the case. Archaeological evidence says that up until the Neolithic age, things like barley and rice weren't really a big part of people's diets, since you have to gather them. Winnow them, husk them, grind them. It's just a lot of work in general, processing grains to a point where you can eat them. Yeah, so people probably didn't go to that much trouble. Yeah, Um, But Hayden's research found that people in Syria would travel up to 40 or 60 miles to get access to grain. So it seemed like there must be some motive for obtaining grains that had to do with something other than just eating them. And that's likely to make beer out of them or some sort of alcohol, because if you needed something fancy or ceremonial to serve at your banquet, beer was a pretty good bet. Yeah, beer actually became a big staple at feasts, along with meat and something starchy like bread or porridge. Um, If your host gave you good beer, you'd probably be in pretty good standing with them. Yeah, you might loosen up a little bit, maybe work out a deal or something. You can see why it would be useful. Um, This discovery kind of reminded me of the 2007 discovery of a cache of Mayan pottery um, that I think I talked about some in the History of Chocolate episode. Archaeologists had found theobromine, which is the chemical calling card of cacao uh, in this pottery. Um, But the weird thing about it is it didn't have classic mixers for the chocolate drink. It had the cacao, but it didn't have vanilla or honey or spices. It just had the cacao chemical. And it meant that these vessels probably held cacao alcohol, which was this fermented beverage made from fruit pulp instead of the beans. And maybe they they assume that maybe in the process of making this more ancient beverage, this alcoholic beverage, somebody discovered that you could make another drink that's probably a little tastier <laughs> out of the fermented beans. Pretty smart. Yeah. 
It's also kind of reminiscent of the Whiskey Rebellion. Yeah, which has been on my list for a long time. Yeah, and the idea there is that because grains are easier to keep, cheaper to transport, and infinitely more valuable when they've been processed in alcohol, um, why not do it that way? Yeah. So maybe people started domesticating grains so they could make beer. (laughs) Who knows? Yes, that would definitely be the more flavorful alternative, I think. But... Hopefully this has gotten you in the spirit to go out and have a good time for New Year's Eve. Put on your dancing shoes. Yes, let loose a little bit. And now it's time for listener mail. So our first email comes from Shane in Ohio, and he wrote that he teaches advanced placement U.S. history in Northern Ohio, and he loves the podcast. Uh, He said that he especially enjoyed the Sherlock Holmes and the Lost podcast, and that's partly because he's really into finding Easter eggs in shows, which um, if you're not familiar with Easter eggs, they're like the little things that if you watch really carefully, and probably if you have a DVR and can actually pause your TV show, uh, you'll catch just little inside um, Easter eggs for hardcore fans. So regarding House and Sherlock Holmes, he wrote, there is a little Easter egg whenever they show the address that Gregory House lives at, 221B Baker Street. Yep, the same as Mr. Sherlock Holmes. And then um, this was just so sweet, but he wrote, if you want to make a history teacher as happy as he can be, Short of a day at the Smithsonian, mention any of this in some future podcast, and my, quote, history nerd status will be forever cemented in my classroom, which is a great thing. So I hope <laughs> we've, like, boosted your reputation in your classroom and um, enjoy watching your Lost reruns and your house episodes. Yep, definitely. This next letter is also Sherlock Holmes related. It's from Chris, and he says this is his first time writing in. He says... I am a fan of the Sherlock Holmes stories, and since you asked for favorite Sherlock stories, I must mention a favorite that was also one of the ones that was never told. Holmes was fond of referring to adventures that he and Watson had embarked on that weren't written about, and in The Adventures of the Sussex Vampire, Holmes says, Matilda Briggs was not the name of a young woman, Watson. It was a ship which is associated with the giant rat of Sumatra, a story for which the world is not yet prepared. How can you not be intrigued by that? Giant rats. It is intriguing, I think. Definitely. He also adds, as the other letter did, a couple of House Sherlock associations. And he says he's fans of both shows. And he mentioned the apartment number, but he also mentions that Dr. James Wilson in House plays the part of Dr. John Watson. They even give a nod to it in in-universe, with House being shot by a man named Moriarty, and a made-up love interest for House named, of course, Irene Adler, which was also a Holmes character. So There you go. We have a lot of Holmes enthusiasts out there. I think we got a lot of mail about favorite Holmes stories and just general Sherlock commentary on the latest show and other favorite series. Yes. We love to get those letters, so if you have any comments on previous podcasts or today's podcast, some favorite discoveries, 
of 2010 that we didn't mention that you want to share with us, please write us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also visit us on Facebook or at Twitter at Missed in History. Yeah, and we also have tons of year-end wrap-up articles being published right now as we speak. Image galleries of 2010, best uh, news stories of 2010, and you can search for them on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. I just realized that the first letter of every line of this review <laughs> spells help me. <laughs> it seems like everyone's a critic these days, blessing the world with our slightest opinions, all on our own mini platform. I'm Scott Janovitz. And I'm Greg Conley. We're the hosts of Citizen Critic, a new podcast where we critique the critics and review the reviews of your favorite movies, music, television, toasters, toiletries, and paint colors. Listen to Citizen Critic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal papa shot abilities, and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Homa, PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grinding and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now.